If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to read a couple of verses from Ezra chapter 5 just to set the context. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 477. Ezra chapter 5, and we're going to read the first two verses at this point. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Let's take a, a moment to recap on where we've got to so far in our studies in the book of Ezra, and let's consider a timeline to set things in context. In 538 BC, King Cyrus of Persia decreed that the exiled Jews could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, over 42,000 Jews returned. And as Nigel told us two weeks ago, they built the altar, laid the foundation of the temple, and there was a great celebration. However, as Tim Walker told us last week, opposition came, and the building soon stopped. In fact, the building stopped for about 16 years, until God sent his word through the prophet Haggai. In the first chapter of Haggai, the people were castigated for saying it was not yet time to build the house of the Lord. Sixteen years, and it wasn't time. They were chastised for panelling the walls of their own houses while God's house lay in ruins. And they were commanded to go up and bring down the timber from the mountains and to build the house of God. At the end of Haggai chapter 1, we read that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. So all seemed to be back on track and going well, but not for long. I'd like you to turn in your Bible again to Haggai chapter 2 to look at the passage that we're going to focus on this morning. You'll find it on page 948 of the Bibles in the pews. So Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. And we're going to read chapter 2 verses 1 to 9. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. 
The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. What is it that triggers your memories and sends you hurtling into the past? It could be a sound, a sight, a smell. It could be familiar words seen from a movie or a song. Isn't it amazing how we can develop such strong associations with certain memories or times in our life? With me, it's the songs from U2's Joshua Tree, the greatest album ever. Did you know that last month was the 20th anniversary of the release of the Joshua Tree, or two months ago in March, actually? I feel old. But when I hear these songs, I'm a teenager again. A young teenager, let me hasten to add, in case anyone's trying to do the maths. When I hear where the streets have no name or with or without you, I'm instantly transported to a different time. I'm in my friend's garage once more as we hammer away at our instruments, butchering those songs that we love so much. Ah, anyway. Can you identify with such nostalgia? Longfellow described nostalgia as a feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain and resembles sorrow only as the mist resembles the rain. Isn't it funny how when we look back, we often romanticize the past and we talk about the good old days and we think about how things were much better back then. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV programs where they get all these grumpy old men or women and they give off about the present and look back to when men were men and music wasn't noise and, well, and so on. One month after Haggai's word from God moved the people to start building, They were becoming discouraged. They were looking back and their current situation was not comparing favorably with the times of old. So I've called this morning's sermon, Be Strong and Work. And we're going to look at the passage under three headings. Look back, remember God's mercies. Look up, know God's presence. And look forward, expect God's working. So firstly, look back, remember God's mercies. Seven weeks after Haggai started prophesying and about one month after the people started to build, the word of the Lord once more comes through Haggai. Haggai is remarkable in dating exactly the times of these prophecies. And the message that we have read was delivered on the 21st day of the seventh month. The timing is significant. The first day of the seventh month was the Feast of Trumpets. The tenth day was the Solemn Day of Atonement. And then five days later, the week-long Feast of Tabernacles began. This was a joyous feast to celebrate the autumn harvest. The people lived in temporary dwellings, tents or booths, to remind them of the time that God's people spent in the wilderness. Every morning of of the feast, there was a joyous procession with music to the spring of Gihon, and the priest would fill a golden pitcher with water, and they would return through the water gate into the city, and the priest would pour the water onto the altar. And this was an act of thanksgiving for the rain. On the seventh and last day of the feast, he walked around the altar seven times and then poured the water out. And it was on this last day of the feast, the 21st day of the seventh month, that Haggai steps forward to bring God's word again. Try to put yourself in the place of these people. A month ago, you'd started with renewed vigor to continue the building of the temple that had stopped for 16 years. 
What would you have achieved in that month? Probably very little. There were years of rubble in the temple site that had to be cleared before any real building could occur. And just as you thought you were making some progress, well, you'd have to stop for the Sabbath each week, and then the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, and now you just spent a week celebrating what we're told in Haggai chapter 1 was a pitiful harvest that year. When you look at the temple site, what do you see? What do you feel? Those who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple before its destruction wept, as we're told in Ezra 3. What is Haggai doing? Is he rubbing it in? Remember the glory of the previous temple? Solomon's temple was truly magnificent. Rich in splendor, covered in gold, a monumental tribute to God's glory. How does it look to them now? Does it not seem like nothing? I'm sure that's exactly how it seemed. A rubble-strewn building site. There are no stockpiles of timber waiting. There's no treasury of gold. There are no large groups of tradesmen. Nothing like when Solomon came to build the previous temple. The good old days were long gone, and there seemed to be little to encourage the people. The young Jews who had returned would no doubt have been regaled by stories from their elders about the grandeur of the previous temple. And those who knew the scriptures would know that Ezekiel, Isaiah and Jeremiah had spoken of a great and marvellous temple, far more glorious than Solomon's. They probably had high hopes, initially. But the cold, hard reality of their current situation soon put paid to those hopes. Do you ever look back over your life? And remember a time when you walked closer with God. Can you recall previous years when you had a passion burning within you for the, for the work of God? A fire raging in your soul. A fire which perhaps now has been reduced to glowing embers at best. Do you sometimes wonder if your best days are behind you? Do you think that the heights previously attained will never be seen again? I'm sure each one of us can think back to times when we knew the joy of God's presence in a more immediate sense than we do now. A time when we were filled with a love for his word, a thirst for spending time fellowshipping with him in prayer, when we had a burden for the lost and for mission, when the most important thing in our life was to do God's will and be part of the building of his church and the extension of his kingdom. How do such memories make you feel? Perhaps we're not much different from the people of Haggai's day. Perhaps we see our lives as a rubble-strewn, neglected building site with little evidence of much happening. Like the Jews who had returned from exile, we might be doing the right things. They celebrated the feasts. We're here on Sunday to worship. They'd started to work in the temple site, and we might be engaging in some aspects of the work of God. But is our heart really in it like it once was? Do we really believe that God can or will do a mighty work in us, through us, as individuals, as a church together here in Windsor? Looking back to what God has done in the past, to remember his mercies, is indeed worthwhile. 
to forget what God had done for us would be appalling. Each week we meet here to gather around the Lord's table to recall exactly what God has done for us in his grace. It is a good thing to do. For the people of Haggai's day to forget God's previous mercies would have been unacceptable. For some it was all that had kept them going through the exile. The promise of return. The promise of a greater temple. So what was the problem? They were stuck in the past. They couldn't see beyond it. The remembrance of God's past mercies and work amongst them didn't shift them from their nostalgia. It simply prevented them from moving forward. I have no doubt that causing Christians to be rooted in the past is a tool of the devil. In the tongue-in-cheek satire of the 77 habits of highly ineffective Christians, living in the past is habit number 53. The author writes, You must understand that many effective Christians use the past for great good. They remember the sins of the past and ask forgiveness. They remember the lessons of the past and act on them. They seek change in themselves because of the past. I do not want you to do such things. You should longingly desire the past. You must convince yourself it was always better back then. The hymns were richer. The worship lasted longer. The fellowship was sweeter. The shared meals were not low fat. The people were more considerate. The missionaries stayed away longer. You didn't have to give as much in the offering to feel good about it. The past can never come again, so you must bring it back with your mind. Wallow in it. Suck the marrow from the past in your mind, and your eyes will be so glazed that you will not be able to perceive the gift God gives you in the present. It's humorous satire and obviously reverse psychology. But is there any truth in it? Is that you? Is that me? Is that us in Windsor Baptist? Facing current challenges, are we wistfully looking to the past and ignoring the call of God in our present day? Well, what does God say through Haggai to us? Remember God's mercies, yes. But that's not enough. Secondly, we need to look up and know God's presence. In verse 4, God's word brings things right to the present. But now. Who is this word for? It's firstly for the leaders of the people, the national leader, the governor, Zerubbabel, the spiritual leader, the high priest, Joshua. But it's also for each man, woman and child. This word is addressed to all the people of the land. What is the word that comes to the leaders and the people? Three times they're told to be strong. Easier said than done, you might have thought, had you been there. I mean, here they are, slogging away in a desecrated city, working on a devastated temple site. They're a small, isolated group of recently returned people facing a mammoth task. They're surrounded by enemies, some of whom purport to be allies and have sought to ingratiate themselves and infiltrate themselves into their work. They're facing opposition on all sides. And what does God say to them? Be strong. Easy to say, but here they are, frightened and alone. But they're not alone. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. 
God's words through Haggai would have brought familiar words from Deuteronomy 31 to their minds. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, that is the surrounding peoples. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And God had been faithful to his promise as he led his people from Egypt to the promised land. He was with them. He did not leave them. They knew God's promise was true. As they reflected in Joshua 24, not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. What was the people's problem? They'd remembered the previous mercies, but they had forgotten that the God who gave such mercies was the God who was still with them. They had lost sight of the presence of God in their midst. They could see the problems, the difficulties, the opposition. But they couldn't see that the Spirit of God remained among them. When you face difficulties in your life, when you feel oppressed, when you feel that it's all too much for you, it can be easy to become downhearted. Even looking back to what God has previously done for us may not lift us from despondency. It was all very well back then, but things are different now. Are they? What is different? Is God any different? Is God any less powerful? Has God changed? Has God left you? Has God removed his spirit from you? No, of course not. But you might say, I'm different now. I'm not who I used to be. I'm not as close to God. Things have slipped. I don't deserve his presence. Well, tell me, whenever did you deserve his presence? Whenever were you good enough to walk with God? What were you before when you were close to God? You were a sinner saved by grace. What are you now? The very same. Our God is a God of grace who does not change. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign over everything in this universe. He loves you and cares for you and is working all things for your good. And this will not change ever. He is with us. So be strong and do not fear. Let us look up and know God's presence with us. I can't help but apply this to us as a body of believers here in Windsor. Yes, we can take personal application from these words. But remember, Haggai brought this word from God to the community of God's people. We in Windsor are facing a time of change in the next few months. David, one of our pastors, is leaving us. I've no doubt that many of us are unsettled by that. And I'm sure, like me, some of you have been looking back over the years of his ministry to us here. And many of us have benefited so much that it's only natural to have some concerns for the future. We can be tempted to see problems, to see the worries, to wistfully look back to previous years and become stuck in the past. Yes, things will change here. But what will not change? Are we still a people set apart for God by his grace in our lives? Are we still the people of God in this place who worship him as Lord and Saviour? 
Is God, our God, still all-powerful? Is he in control of what happens to us as a church? Is God with us? Will he stay with us? Will his spirit remain among us? Yes, yes, yes. So be strong. Do not fear. And what else does God say? Be strong and work. We are to work. We're not to sit back and simply pat each other on the back and say, God is with us, isn't this great? The people of Haggai's day took great comfort from God's word. But the temple wasn't going to build itself. There's no let go and let God. Yes, we're not saved by works, but we're saved to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What are we to do? If you want to know God's presence with you, don't just sit back and wait for a nice warm feeling. You need to work at it. The Jews might have remembered the similar words of God to Joshua when he was called to be strong. Joshua chapter 1, he was told, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. If you look back and remember God's mercies, let that cause you to look up and know God's presence with you. His word tells you to be strong and work. Delve into his word, meditate on it, pray it into your life before the throne of God and know his glorious presence with you every day of your life. Thirdly then, look forward. Expect God's working. God's word through Haggai has encouraged the people to realize their present blessings. But in his grace, he gives them so much more. He gives them a great hope for the future. They can recall great works of God in the past. But at the present time, there was not much evidence of the same. God gives them a glimpse of what was to come. In verse 6, we read, This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. God is still sovereign, still in control, still the Almighty God. Before long, he did indeed shake the heavens and the earth. The Persian Empire fell, as did the subsequent empires of Syria, Egypt and Greece. But more importantly, God shakes the heavens and the earth in a spiritual sense. What or who is the desired of all nations? Some people think this is a reference to Christ, a messianic prophecy. But the scriptures tend to view the Messiah as despised and rejected, the rock that makes men stumble rather than desired. Also, the word used for desired is plural. Is it not that the desired of all nations refers to the widening of the scope of God's grace and purpose with the ingathering 
of the Gentiles into the people of God. Isn't this pointing to the great move of God in the new covenant to set apart a people for himself who all know him, a people from every tongue, tribe and nation? Isn't this talking about the gospel age and the spreading of God's word, the drawing to himself of many peoples from all corners of the earth, including us? From our standpoint today, we we lose the impact that this should have. Put yourself again into the shoes of the isolated remnant of Jews in Jerusalem in Haggai's day. You feel oppressed. You're small in number. And God gives this vision of a multitude of people coming to himself. What an encouragement. What an inspiration to work for God's glory. The people may have been concerned about the material needs of the temple. God was not concerned. In verse 8 he says that the silver and gold is his. What is he saying to the people? He's telling them not to worry about the external finish. Don't worry about where the gold and silver will come from. God will provide what is needed. He is again more concerned with the hearts of his people than material things. I believe that the application of God's word for us today regarding the temple relates to the building of God's church in the spiritual sense. The growth of believers, the growth through conversions. However, in our current context, I can't avoid a specific application regarding physical building. Again, we face a time of change with the prospect of embarking on a new church building project. Does this passage have anything to say to us? In that regard, I believe it does. What is your greatest concern when you think of the plans that we have seen for a new church building? If we're honest, we'll probably admit it's the costs involved, the financial implications, the silver and gold. Am I saying that costs don't matter? No. Am I saying that we won't have to dig deep? Not at all. What I am saying is that this is not God's greatest concern. The silver and gold is his. If this is God's will, then he will provide. Through us and our giving, yes, undoubtedly. Yet God has a greater concern. What about the hearts of his people? I've been greatly challenged as I've considered this. Perhaps looking at our bank balances and the church financial statement is looking in the wrong places. Perhaps counting up what we think we could manage to afford is not the most important thing to consider in any decision. I'm going to make a radical statement here. Perhaps rather than seeing how full the offering bags are, we should be considering how full our prayer meetings are. Now, numbers and seats are no guarantees of where our hearts are. But tell me, if we are to proceed with such a major endeavour, should it not be that we are pouring out our hearts to God to seek his face in this matter? 
As the people of God in this place, should we not be longing to fellowship together in prayer to bring these things before the throne of grace? If we are found lacking, then perhaps we need to stop and think. Perhaps we need to reevaluate our plans. Perhaps we need to hear the word of God that Haggai brings. In verse 9, God says that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. It's hard to believe. We've already alluded to the majestic nature of Solomon's temple. Could this building effort lead to a temple of greater glory? Well, it didn't. Not physically, anyway. But God is not as concerned with the physical as he is with the spiritual. What is the greatest glory the temple could have? The presence of God. Over 500 years later, a father and mother bring their newborn son into the temple courts to receive a blessing. An old man of God in the temple praises God for his eyes have seen God's salvation. Fast forward another 30 years and the very words of God are delivered from the very mouth of God incarnate as the Messiah, the Chosen One, stands in that very building. In that place, God will grant peace. And through his greatest work, the curtain in that temple separating the people from God's presence was torn apart as Christ, God's Son, died for our sins to bring us peace. Oh, if only the people of Haggai's day could have seen in detail what was coming. If only they could know what we know. But they had a foretaste of what great work to expect from God. What a promise for them to cling to in difficult times. Has God finished his great works? Is that it? Well, no, we can read about great works of God in more recent history as we learn about great revivals that took place, even in our land. But perhaps when we read about such, we again fall into the trap of looking back and getting stuck in the past. Do we think that God cannot once again shake the heavens and the earth? Does God still not have a plan and purpose which he is sovereignly working out in our day? In Zechariah, who also prophesied during these days, he talks about the people despising the day of small things. That is, they were living in a time without any great evidence of such great workings, and they despised it. Are we guilty of despising the day of small things? These days in which we're living, we might not be seeing great dramatic works of the Spirit of God. But God is still working and we should not despise it. We should expect great workings from God. This prophecy from Haggai is not yet completely fulfilled. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 quotes from these verses of Haggai and tells us that this shaking also refers to the removal of created things. God has a plan. There are great things ahead, culminating with the end of time, the return of Christ, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And even before that, I believe that we, or future generations, will see great things from God. 
Some parts of the world are already witness to such. So let us look forward and expect God's working. Let us pray for it. Let us long for it and ask him to bring it to pass in our day. As we conclude, I want to move us forward from Haggai's day almost 550 years to the day from when Haggai delivered this message. In John chapter 7, we're told that it was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the same day. The priest would have carried the water from the spring and poured it onto the altar, thanking God for the rain. Jesus steps forward in the temple on that day. He said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Are you thirsty? Perhaps you long for that closeness you once had with God. Perhaps you have never known God. You have this thirst and emptiness and nothing has ever quenched it. Perhaps you long for the presence of God in your daily life and you would love to see God do a great work in our day. It's all to be found in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Look back and remember his mercies. Look up and know his presence. Look forward and expect his coming. And God says to his people, be strong and work.